Welcome to 10 Minute TechCom. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama in Huntsville. And today I'm presenting part four of a series on making technical communication more inclusive, featuring a guest who talks about expanding our definitions of success in technical communication. So my name is Lehua Ledbetter, and I am an assistant professor of writing and rhetoric at the University of Rhode Island. And I study or I'm interested in the intersections of feminist rhetorics and marginalized communities and technical communication. And one of the studies that I did involved YouTube's beauty community and how it can change or influence the way we think about tactical techcom. Dr. Ledbetter joins us today to talk about her research interviewing YouTube content creators from marginalized communities to find out how they use procedural discourse to explain broader issues than just how to get technical things done. Her work causes us to reconsider what counts as technical communication and whose voices get to be heard. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to talk with you. And this is kind of the second part of a conversation that we recorded with uh, Dr. Avery Edenfeld the other week, um, where both of you together have worked on issues of tactical, technical communication, especially among uh, traditionally marginalized and disadvantaged communities. And I talked about this a little bit with Avery, but can you tell me a little bit about how something like tactical technical communication affects how we think about success in technical communication generally. So for me, I think about what techcom means and how it's defined in our field first. And I also think about how success is typically defined in fields. And I had to recalibrate that to accommodate the way that some of these marginalized communities are doing techcoms. So to me, techcom can serve multiple purposes. It's definitely instructional, but for a marginalized community, it might serve a purpose like how to survive. That, that was the main one that I found. And these other purposes aren't always acknowledged by the field. And so what I refer to as tactical techcom, it's these other purposes that might be, might appear small and they probably don't meet industry standards for what techcom looks like. It still serves the purpose of both providing instructional discourse or how-to, and it also serves uh, the purpose of providing some essential instructions on how to do other things. Like, you know, for one of my participants, it was how to survive when you are one of the only people of color in your town. She was growing up Asian American in Minnesota, and so her videos would provide instructions on how to use specific makeup products or how to do specific beauty routines, but they would also provide some information on how to find community online and how to negotiate that identity. And so as far as influencing the way that we think about techcom or tactical techcom, I think that we need to look at instructions that might appear in other settings that are less formal. So, you know, we typically think about techcom in a brick and mortar workplace, but uh, I was interested in looking online in places like forums or social media and specifically YouTube and looking at these instructional videos that also seem to resist some kind of dominant narrative, but also provide some kind of uh, instruction on how to be comfortable with your identity or how to survive. I'd like to ask, a couple of follow-ups. One is, you know, you mentioned 
that you have kind of your own definition of tech calm. Do you mind sharing that with us? Do you have that in like an elevator speech format or like off the cuff definition? Yeah. So, I mean, the one that I used and developed from, for my study and my article, primarily, you know, tech calm as procedural discourse. So some kind of how to that provides instructions on how to, you know, on how to how to go through a process and how to accomplish a task. And that's kind of a broader definition. And that's the one that I, I used for this. And in YouTube's beauty community, you know, that task was often something like how to achieve a specific makeup look or how to use a specific product. People would think, you know, it's kind of a stretch as far as thinking of that genre as techcom. But the thing is, a lot of these big makeup companies like L'Oreal or Lancome are relying on consumers to make the instructions for them because people are actually looking in these places, looking to other consumers for instruction rather than L'Oreal's website to learn how to do a specific look. And so a lot of these content producers actually get paid for the work that they do. They're given products to, in order to you know, provide instructions to viewers. And a lot of time, there's a little bit more trust when people are getting the information from another consumer rather than from a big company. This still counts as techcom because it is actual paid work for providing procedural instructions or procedural discourse. It just looks different from your typical you know, brochure or instructional guide that you might find. So that's interesting. So there is a real like formal relationship between some of these companies and some of these people that they're getting paid for their work and they're getting sample products. Am I interpreting that correctly? Yeah. And that, and that might be the more formal end of it. I think of it as kind of a spectrum. On the other hand, there are people who are just making these videos because they truly want to share, you know, instructions on how they did a particular makeup look or how they, you know, uh, some of the videos are things like how to, you know, do a drugstore. You know, one of the terms that they use is drugstore. So basically products you can find at the drugstore, how to do a drugstore like Halloween makeup look or how to do a drugstore zombie makeup look. So, you know, there, there might be things like that and they may not necessarily necessarily be paid by a makeup company, but they still, uh, they may generate some profit from Google as YouTubers. When I was doing this myself, back in the day, I was making videos on how to find and apply Asian beauty products. I hadn't really hit the market in the United States yet, but you could get them online because a lot of the times they were in Korean or they were in Japanese. So I would kind of research and translate some of that and then try to provide like videos for an English speaking American audience. Oh, so you are one of these content creators. You've produced these kinds of videos yourself. Oh yeah, that's that's how I got interested in it and myself. And I, um, I noticed that I was myself using it for a few different purposes. So I was doing it I was actually getting paid from Google, making some just a little bit of money off of my videos. But I was also doing it because I was living in Michigan and I didn't really have access to a community of Asian American people like myself uh, where I lived. So I found that I was able to connect with them online. Mm -hmm. So to get back to something really interesting that you said a while ago, you were talking about some of these other YouTubers who use these videos for the kind of procedural work you're talking about. Here's how to apply this makeup or achieve this look or whatever. But there's almost like another whole level of procedural discourse of say how to survive as a person of color in a predominantly white town. Can you talk a little bit more about how some of that appears and kind of works with the rest of these videos? 
So one of the subjects for my study, I refer to as Lisa. She was someone that I followed pretty closely, partly because of the rapid growth and success of her YouTube channel. So one of her videos that really interested me was, it was just called How to Be Yourself. <laughs> this would appear alongside her makeup tutorials and her skincare how-to videos. She shared that when she was younger, uh, living in Minnesota, she created an online identity for herself that was based on this idealized identity that she she thought she needed to have in order to be credible online. A white girl with divorced parents, blonde hair and blue eyes, whose name was, uh, I think it was Julie Foster, very generic white person who she felt she needed to be in order to be credible. And as she started creating her YouTube channel and kind of revealing herself in other ways, she stopped doing that. She had a little bit more agency to kind of reveal who she was identify as an Asian American woman, you know, living in the Midwest. And, you know, she in the video, she talks about how to be how to be comfortable with that. So that's, that's maybe one of the videos that I can think of that kind of talks about this idea of how to survive. Um, and there are others like there are really prolific YouTubers like Michelle Fan, for example, who started off, you know, very small making really low production quality videos on her phone on things like, you know, how to curl your hair or, you know, how to do specific makeup looks. And she identifies as second generation Vietnamese American. So she made these whiteboard animations on how she used YouTube to kind of help her get through the struggle of being poor and Vietnamese American. She felt like she didn't have a choice before YouTube other than working at her mom's nail salon. When she started making the videos, she felt that she had an alternative way to maybe make money. And, you know, interestingly, she actually really took off. She makes millions of dollars now and owns several big companies herself. <laughs> have to work at the nail salon. Her mom doesn't have to work at the nail salon. So I think that these people who share their stories, their identities, and their process of becoming comfortable with these identities, I think they're doing a couple of things. They're providing people, other people who have similar struggles with a community to belong to and to identify with. And they're also, you know, they don't, they don't give like specific, I wouldn't say they give like a specific how-to guide on like how to survive being poor how to survive you know feeling marginalized but they provide like a step-by-step -step on how they achieved success in different ways whether whether success is belonging or whether success is financial or whether success is no longer having to work in a brick and mortar workplace so that is the kind of how-to that I think of as survival those skills or those stories aren't really typically attributed to people who are in those situations in this country, unfortunately. My participant, Lisa, talked about experiencing a lot of discrimination at work. She went to college, she graduated, she worked full-time. Um, I believe she said for like a, uh, I think it was like a financial company of some sort. And she just felt like she could never get through the glass ceiling there. She experienced a lot of discrimination and felt like she had to hide who she was. So she did provide some specifics like how to make your, how to make your own channel. 
uh, if you're interested in trying to find an alternative way to employ yourself, how to do your camera setup, where to get your equipment. She would share things like that. And maybe that counts too. <laughs> I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm trying to remember things that I wrote about like six years ago. So but she would share how women might find other ways to get around feeling like you have no choice, but to work at a place where you'll experience discrimination, where you won't get paid more than a certain amount. I think that's also another example of how they provided tech comm serving multiple purposes. Well, this is really interesting to me because, you know, you gave us this definition of tech comm as procedural discourse. And usually what we think of is, you know, that that means, all right, insert this disk into this disk drive and click this thing to make this happen. But what's happening here is that people are stretching this idea of procedural discourse to give us stuff that's maybe more personal or more more identity-based or more focused on a larger picture of who they are as a person and how they survive or struggle in the world, and that that's kind of taking procedural discourse to a new level. Is that part of what's going on here? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing was how this relates to the idea of success and what that means. So what I noticed about a lot of this genre that I'm referring to as procedural discourse is that they, a lot of the videos didn't look like they met industry standards for what a good instructional video is supposed to look like. So for my study, I talked a lot about, I believe it was an article by Moraine and Swartz. It was like a rubric. Right. Yeah. I've taught that article a couple of times. Yeah. Actually really good for looking at that particular kind of procedural discourse, but you can't really take this rubric and apply it to all procedural discourse because not all communities and not all groups are going to be using procedural discourse for the same purposes. So a really successful uh, YouTube online video on say, you know, how to survive as an Asian American woman or a Chinese American immigrant in the United States might be shaky and blurry. So for example, my participant, Lisa, she made, she made a video on how to clear your pores with a steamer. The video, if you were to take it and use that uh, rubric for success to evaluate it, you would probably think it was not successful because it was shaky, it was blurry. And and one of the things I remember about the Moraine and Sports article was that a big part of this was kind of setting up an expectation and then following through with that expectation. And she often wouldn't do that. She would go off into tangents and tell stories. And those stories were actually very meaningful, but they didn't follow this rubric. However, that video has over 10 million views. You know, a lot of people in the community referred to it and kind of used that to riff off of creating their own genres and also kind of redefining what, say, for example, good skin looks like and the role that that plays in the beauty community. So for me, like recalibrating success means reevaluating that rubric. Uh, what are some of the assumptions that we make when we follow that rubric? Or what are some of the assumptions that we make when we define what successful procedural discourse looks like? And where do those assumptions come from? Do they come from some kind of linear sense of you know success that we can trace back to? I come from a cultural rhetoric uh, orientation. And so you know I think a lot about how definitions of success kind of can be traced back to colonialism, you know, enlightenment things thinking about the world and linearity. And I think questioning those assumptions can be really important in being able to see how these other instances can be defined as successful, even though they don't look at or they don't look like how our industry defines that right now. Listening to you talk, to me, it sounds like 
one of the criteria that TechCom generally has in mind that these videos question might be something like efficiency. You know, like in one minute, you're going to teach me how to do this thing in Adobe Photoshop, which is great if I want to learn Adobe Photoshop, but which is not a valid criteria for exploring issues of survival and identity. Efficiency is not really the criteria that you want. Efficiency and I think fulfillment of expectations. And I think that um, understanding that, uh, you know, your expectations as a viewer might have more to do with your own identity and, you know, your kind of orientation, your cultural orientation, and to be aware of that and to be able to reflect on that can help you understand how um, a video might fulfill expectations for other people, even if they don't fulfill expectations for you. Uh, it seems like another thing that's going on here, you know, I'm really interested in this Julie Foster situation of this person who I assume she wasn't YouTubing at the time when she sort of had this Julie Foster identity. But it seems like one of the problems and issues in TechCom that you're exploring is that TechCom has its sort of like Julie Foster voice, or like probably more accurately, like a Jim Foster, you know, sort of this like particular identity that's set as neutral, but isn't. Right. And that a lot of people don't fit inside of that, putting on that identity. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think I experienced, you know, a good deal of that myself. You know, I, I felt like I really had to work very hard to uh, legitimize myself as someone who had something to say in the field. And part of that is because of who I am. And I just didn't feel like I fit when I looked at who who were the, the successful voices or who were the voices that had the most credibility in TechCom. As a mixed race person of Asian descent who, you know, grew up in on an island in Hawaii and, you know, <laughs> I... I didn't feel like I had the credibility. We are starting to push against that now, and I'm really happy about that. For example, I've, I'm seeing organizations like ATTW and SIGDOC really starting to challenge that and push against and question what those what credibility looks like in our field and who who you know who can be credible and why and, and where those assumptions come from. So I'm happy to see that that's shifting. But you know, uh, six years ago when I was writing my dissertation. I really felt like I didn't fit and that I was I was not going to be able to really have a voice in the conversation because I, I didn't feel like I belonged. Well, I'm glad you feel like things are moving in the right direction, at least. And the kind of work that you're doing is an important step in making that happen. So thanks for coming on today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I really appreciate having the chance to to talk about my work.